All right, good morning, church. It's great to have you all here today. If you can take your Bibles or uh, the Bible on your phone and jump to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're in a series, um, as many of you know, if you've been around, in uh, the, just exploring the whole concept of what does it mean to be the church and why, why do we do what we do as the church, as Manuka Bible Church? Why do we have why do we do some of the things we do? And uh, as we've been going through that, we've been kind of mapping our way through our mission statement, starting off with the beginning, that as a community of Christ followers, we're committed to being real with God, and that our community step to do that, to have that authentic interaction with God, is to have this weekly interaction with one another, that we come together and we are corporately worshiping this great God who's worthy of all praise. And, and we see that in Scripture, that they gathered together, and, and we even see they gathered together in the temple courts um, after, after Pentecost, after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and gave his people the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden we have this amazing um, interaction that we have with one another on a large scale, but they didn't stop there. They, they moved into really what the church has been known for, which is these face-to-face -face interactions, which is the second part of our mission statement as a church, that we're a community of Christ followers who are committed to being real with each other. That means that, that we, we participate, if you were here last week, with the face-to-face -face strategy of Jesus, that we actually, we go from being spectators on Saturday and Sunday, and we go into groups, whether they're uh, Celebrate Recovery or real-life groups that you see out there in the atrium, or they're um, uh, re-engage groups, they're, uh, master's men, the mops. We, uh, we want to have face-to-face -face interaction where we have an opportunity to explore Scripture, and we get to pray for one another and be prayed for, and actually do life with each other. But there's a problem with that. It's the each other part of that th statement. People are complicated and they're messed up. I mean, not this service, but all the other services that go to this church <laughs> really have some serious issues. And we get to the reality that these people are abrasive. What uh, Mary Sutherland uh, in her, her book, um, Sandpaper People, call um, loving people, loving the soul of people who are just abrasive. And when I, I remember when that book first came out thinking sandpaper people, my thought just went right to these guys. But, um, <laughs> But it's not. It's sandpaper people, and her whole point of that was this. She says, we live in a world that hoards a myriad of problems. However, you'll be thrilled to know that I've discovered the biggest problem of all. People. In my opinion, if there were fewer people, there would be definitely be fewer problems. And that's true. And so you come here in this whole series, and you hear it every week, better together, better together. And you're like, yes, this makes sense. And then you go home. And you're like, no, it doesn't. Or you go to a small group where you actually do enough life with enough people that you realize it's complicated. And that if we can affirm this on Sunday morning or Saturday night, but the reality of the rest of our week, the theology of our heart is more like this. Yes, we are better alone. I don't need these people. In fact, I could be totally comfortable showing up on church on Sunday because there's a level of anonymity that I could, if I look like I know where I'm going and I just do this, I can ninja my way to my seat and then back to the parking lot without anybody even asking me how I'm doing. And it's beautiful. Okay, now that's, that's part and parcel of our strategy. But this concept is something that doesn't work. Here's how it oftentimes looks. We make this decision because of the fact that these people in our life are truly abrasive. We know people in our world that come in a couple of different forms. Okay, Joe, Joe is a freak for safety. I am tempted to just take these off because you're right there. 
but my wife is somewhere here, so I'm going to keep them on. Okay, so here's the thing. The sandpaper people of our lives come in a couple different forms. The first are the slicers, okay? They're the people that with a word they have and they can cut you down to size, okay? These are the people that, um, and just think, I mean, think about how long this takes. One, 1,000. Two, 1,000. Within two seconds, these people have said something to you that have, has left an indelible mark for the rest of your life. People may have said something to you, your mom, your dad, your grandparent, when you were eight years old, and you may be 50 right now, and you're still walking with that slice. That slice, even though it was a five-second statement, is something that is still speaking the loudest volume over your life. And we have people like this. These are the people that are oftentimes looking at us and saying, why are you crying? Do you know someone like this in your life, in your past? Because if you don't know someone like this, guess what? You're that person. Okay. <laughs> but they're not just slicers. They're also the grating grinders. These are the people that, <laughs> they've got a personality that is just, <sighs> let's just put it this way. They're really convicted. They have convictions about a lot of stuff and opinions that are not just like, like somewhat, you know, like I, I have opinion. They're like opinions that are strong. And not only are they strong, they want to let you know. They look at you not merely as a person, but as a project. In fact, they've got all the argumentation, all the facts. Just look at you and say, I'm just going to open my mouth and tell you what you don't want to hear. And then they open up a Facebook account. And then they say, listen, I know we disagree on politics, but... And they mean well. They really do. I mean, you're messed up and they got to help you. <laughs> there are rough edges on you that they're going to help grind down with the help of God. <laughs> you know someone like this? Because oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't, they're not alone. We got the, the, grit, the heavy grit sand people. Now, the sandpaper person, they actually have, uh, it's, it takes more time with them. This is a slow process, sometimes a lifetime process. Some of these people are the people that we've done life with our entire life. You may be married to this person, they may, you may have grown up in their world, or you may work with them, but over time, it's just... Shut up, okay? Again, slower process, right? But each of these people, we find ourselves avoiding, and we have great rationale of why we avoid them. Now, you have people like this all around the world, but we also have, I mean, within the Christian faith, within our church, we have these people. And you might have had interactions with one of these sandpaper-type people that are abrasive, and you avoid them. You see them, and you go the opposite direction. But let's not just, like, have this ambiguous, you know, amorphous, uh, these, these people, these other people that annoy us. Let's give a name to this person, okay? So let's just say it's Eric. Is anyone in here named Eric? Oh, that's okay. He's not here. We can talk about him. All right. <laughs> Last night, there was a guy like, yeah, I am. I'm like, well, sorry, bud. All right. Here's our problem. When it's us and Eric... We have issues. We, now, here's the thing. 
the thing that Eric and I share in common is not that we uh, come from the same background or anything, but we, we, and we may not even come from the same church, but we share a similar Savior. Both Eric and I are Christians, okay? But the problem is, he is absolutely abrasive to me. I, I, don't, I don't like this guy. I don't agree with this guy. There's things that he does that just frustrate the snot out of me. And so when I see Eric, I see those things. And if Eric acted differently, honestly, if Eric was respectful to me, I'd show him respect. If Eric was like, if he had a little bit of dignity or he wasn't making such terrible decisions in his life, I could handle that. But the fact of the matter is, is that Eric, Eric's wrong. And I can't live with that because whenever I see this, if this was the case, that'd be one thing, but it's not. This is, and then the pastors talk about better together. Well, fine, but this is not going to be a happy relationship. And yes, you know, and honestly, the whole Jesus part of it, I'm excited about because one day Eric's going to go to heaven and Jesus is going to finally fix him. (laughs) This is how we see people. We see that. The things that they've done to us, the things that they do, they believe, whatever. And when we look at Christians, oftentimes that is the predominant thing that we're seeing. Paul, thankfully, Paul has a different strategy. He has a different approach to this. In fact, he writes a group of Christians, people, a church full of Eric's, and says to them, listen, I have so much joy in being connected to you. You want to know what would make my joy complete? And then he tells them, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we get a chance to see Paul's way, uh, his strategy for handling this better than we handle it 2,000 years after he wrote it. Take a look. Again, this chapter two of Philippians starts building on the fact that God has rescued us, that we have this commonality in who God is. And then he gets into this. He says, therefore, I, therefore, if, and if you want to circle in your Bibles all the ifs, he has the, he starts the whole thing with a conditional statement. If this is true, like I'm investigating, is this really true of you? And I honestly believe that Paul's answer to this is, I know that it's true. I'm asking you questions I know the answer to already but I want you to really interrogate the notion in your head with the conditional, conditional statement, is this true? It, therefore, if, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and that word compassion can also be translated as mercy, then make my joy complete. My, my joy is already huge because of you guys just being connected to you people. I'm not physically connected to you, but we've got a connection in Jesus. And, and he, what I'm hearing is, oh, I just love you guys. My joy is like, you want to know what can take it all the way to the top? This, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's also translated sometimes as, as vanity or, or vain thinking. And basically, it's the notion of pushing one's agenda, first and foremost, at the expense of others. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Okay, pause real quick. Paul just put out something that's impossible for everyone in Philippi to live out. 
Paul just stated something that everyone in Manuka cannot live out. All the Christians at NBC, we can't do this. It's impossible. People should have been laughing at the end of that, except that he didn't finish his statement there. He continues it on. And what he continues it on is the only way this is possible. The only way this is possible is through the next thing that he starts doing. He starts to lay out this, poet, this poem, this song about Jesus. He wants them to think more of others by thinking more of Jesus. And so he lays out, and we don't know if this was a song that they sang in that church. We don't know if Paul just got super you know, creative and artistic on the spot and started to drop poem, you know, po- poetic lyrics right there. All we know is that Paul is writing a Christocentric poem about Jesus with the, the goal of changing the way we see Eric. Listen to what he says. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset or literally think like Jesus Christ. Verse 6, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Okay, pause real quick. What he's saying here is this. Did you see what Jesus did for us? I want you to think about that. How many of you in the 90s saw this amazing work of art in film called Aladdin? Man, I so wish I had a girlfriend when that movie came out. That was like, it was just like, it, seriously, the whole new world, a whole new world, people. That song still, like I hear that, I'm like, oh man, <laughs> crying out loud, it's amazing. But that is a, a storyline of a street rat who becomes a prince in order to get the bride. Jesus' story is the inverse of this. We have the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, who becomes the pauper in order to unjustly die for and rescue the bride. You don't have someone elevating up to try to get to. You have someone who's already elevated, doing the unthinkable to rescue the lost. Jesus takes all of the things that make him, he takes all of the, all of the things that he enjoyed in the Godhead, his position, his place, his power, all that. He takes that and he, act, he takes away the independent usage of that and basically cedes that to the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit for their direction. He humiliates himself down to rescue us. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found, verse 8, in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. He's so committed, by the way, right here, he's so committed to the Heavenly Father's plan that he's willing to let it ride all the way into crucifixion. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted, and literally it should be super exalted, God super exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling which always, that verse always tripped me out because I remember the same guy, Paul, writing in Ephesians that we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. So no one can boast about it. And so what, what is this, this thing with, with the, that, that component right there of Paul saying that we need to work out our salvation? What he's saying is this, you were given something by Jesus when he died on the cross for you and you received that salvation. 
and it's operational. It's an operational thing, and you were gifted it, but are you operating it? Is it working, or is it stagnant? Because God gave you this for it to work. Is this, this salvation of yours, is it something intellectually in place, theologically? I believe all the right things about Jesus. Or is that thing that you believe about Jesus actually speaking into everything else in your life? And he goes on from there. For it is God, and, and he reveals the fact that this is God's work. It's his unlocking in the first place. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. He gives you the ability to let your faith be more than an intellectual thing that you agree with, but that it actually becomes part of your life. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold out firmly the word of life. Paul does this amazing thing where he says, this Philippi, this NBC doesn't work. And if you're going to be in a relationship with people as long as you deal well with them, as long as they please you and you're able to please them, you're gonna consistently have disappointing relationships, whether they're at church or at home. This doesn't work for the long haul. Paul's strategy is different. Paul's strategy is the only way for us to be better together is for this, to be the filter that we live and operate by. The only way for us to truly see Eric is to see Eric through what Jesus has done. That's Paul's strategy. The more we see what Jesus did, the better we can see everyone else. Until I see what Jesus did for me, I won't be able to truly see anyone else. And, you, and we, can, we could be the best. So the strategy here is not be a good human. Just go out there and try to be decent to people. That works for a period of time until they've wronged you. Until I see what Jesus did for me, I, don't, I neither see myself authentically and actually, but I can't see them either. But if Jesus is the filter, how Jesus feels about Eric, how Jesus feels about me, how, what Jesus did for Eric, what Jesus did for me, until that is a component, the filter that I look at my world through, I'm going to consistently be making it about what Eric did to me or what I could do to Eric. We need to be living that way. And if we do, if we have that as the lens, because of what Jesus has done inside of us, we can follow his lead and we could actually interact with others differently. Because of the work of Jesus in us, we're able to be real with each other by being charitable instead of harsh. See, the problem with us is that often, I mean, how many of you, most often you think you're right? Okay, right. Yeah, me too. I mean, when we argue, we're not arguing because we're like, I'm just so wrong. I'm just going to get louder. <laughs> we get louder because we know we're, we're Eric's wrong, okay? But because of who is our filter between us and Eric, we see Eric differently and we see ourselves differently. When I'm getting louder, I'm getting louder because, listen, I'm the authority here and you're messing up your world and I'm getting louder and louder and louder and you're not listening to me, so I'm going to get louder. But if Jesus is the filter, then it changes that. When we think about how Jesus interacted with those that he was engaging, people who were far from God wanted to be close to Jesus because Jesus, Jesus was not someone who was different from God. But they saw Jesus. And some people who were far from the religious elite wanted to be close to Jesus. Why? Because he diluted the truth? No, he was all truth. But he also was grace. 
Jesus was the most truthful and yet the most approachable simultaneously. Take a look at the first verse there in chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if there's any mercy in you. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. There's a lot of things that Eric deserves. And you could think that you are the arbiter, you're of not only truth, but you're, you're the executioner to deliver it. Because of Jesus, we can actually communicate truth with grace. We don't have to be harsh. We can actually be charitable in how we're communicating it. But not only that, we're also able to confront a believer who's wronged us or who is in the wrong with respect and with the goal of restoration. That oftentimes is not my goal. When I'm confronting someone, my dream is for that person to say, I I can't believe that I thought what I thought. I can't believe I did what I did. How could I possibly doubt your wisdom? I'm going to tell everybody how brilliant you are and how wrong I was. And I'm going to write, I'm writing a song about you. And that's, that's, in your head, you're like, I want, them to, I want you to suffer for what you did. And I want you to know how right I was so you never question me again. Right? Jesus takes that end goal out of the equation. And what he does instead is this. The goal is not, the end goal is not your glory because your world is not end, uh, all about your glory. The goal is my glory. And what brings me glory? Restoration. Restoration. When Jesus was talking about how to confront a believer, this is what he says in Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, and some manuscripts say, if your brother or sister sins against you, so either way, this, this, this holds true. If, you, if your brother or sister is sitting, they're in the wrong, or they've done something to damage you, go and point out their fault. And all of a sudden we're like, yes, I got permission. Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Why? Why just between the two of you? What is Jesus trying to preserve in this setting? He's trying to preserve the dignity of the person who's in the wrong. If your brother or sister sins or sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So the way that you treat pagans and tax collectors back then is you distance. Like we, we don't do life together, okay? Those people are toxic. Jesus says, you treat people that you're closest with or you're doing life with like you would a pagan or a tax collector. We don't do life together. Why? Well, they, did you hear what he said? Do you know what he did? No, we're like this. And Jesus said, why would you jump to that end goal? You have a better process in place, and it it is all about respect, and the goal is restoration. Just you. This Eric has wronged you. Go to Eric just between the two of you, and you confront him with your sin, and I want to encourage you to do it this way. Eric, listen. You know that I care about you, and you know that I've got issues, sin issues in my own life that I'm working on. I'm not perfect. You know that. And I need, I need you as a brother in Christ to walk with me when I'm making a mistake and I'm shooting myself in the foot spiritually. But just as much as I need you in that setting, you need me as well. And what you're doing right now 
This is not what God intended. Come back to him. Repent. Start walking away from this sin right now. And if you've won them over, great. And if they don't listen, take one or two others along. Why? Because we're still trying to preserve Eric. We're trying to create an environment where we can talk to Eric in a way that Eric is not going to be super defensive. He's already going to be defensive. We know Eric. But we can actually talk to him in a way that could preserve as much opportunity for Eric to hear the truth. We don't do this a lot if we're engaging Eric on social media. Eric has wronged us. We're going to let everyone know that Eric wronged us, even if we don't use Eric's name. All of our friends are going to know we're talking about Eric, won't they? (laughs) Because we're going to describe the situation, and we've told enough people that they'll pick up on it. And then when we do that, all of a sudden, when we're talking about Eric and how wrong Eric is, all of a sudden, Eric's friends hear that, and they start to defend Eric. And then your friends start to defend you and your initial statement by fighting against Eric's friends. Eric's mom finds it, and she's crying, okay? She's freaking out, so she gets in there, and as a mom, she just uses all the profanity she can. (laughs) And all of a sudden, over the course of time, through the course of hours or minutes even, we have a thread that's crazy long where people aren't even arguing about the initial thing you said about Eric. They're just fighting because people are fighting, right? And even if you're like, well, I never use Facebook, because I'm under 35. You have your own ways of doing this. The truth is is that as Christians, our goal is not to do that, but rather to respect them and dignify them enough to recognize that what Jesus did for us and the way Jesus looked at us, we we need to drop that in on our interactions with them as well. First Corinthians chapter five, Paul uses some of the harshest language about someone who's super poisonous in their world. They're, they're, they're not only in massive sin, but they're, they're doing that and they're, they're totally rebelling against anyone who's speaking truth into their life. And Paul's like, you need to get them out of the church because they're believing poison. They're not repentant about it. And they're letting that poison swirl around in their world and letting the poison poison everybody else. You need to get that poison out of the equation. Why? Because the church loves excommunicating people, kicking them to the curb, and it just makes us laugh or something? No. Paul lets it be understood that the goal of this is for that person's ultimate restoration. We need to get them out in order, hopefully, to see that person come back in. But they can't be in right now. This is going to poison themselves and everyone else. It's going to perpetuate wrong that's continuing on. And so we need to get this person out in order to get them back in. But Jesus' Jesus's statement on that is that that's the end. That's the end of the road, not the first step. We need to confront a believer who's wronged us or who's in the wrong with respect and with the goal of restoration. Thirdly, we need to refuse to let our convictions cancel our call to love others. Take a look at verses um, 2 to 4 in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love and being one in spirit of mind. Okay, pause right there. What we just talked about, you're not one in spirit and mind for a long term without having to confront someone or be confronted by somebody. Okay, if, if no one's confronting you or, or, or letting you know something you're doing is wrong, you're around, you're around the wrong people. Okay, every single, okay, every single week, I have people speaking into my life letting me know how wrong I am. And sometimes they're right, okay? And so that, that's something that I have to grapple with. 
And, and, it's, and, and it's one of those things where oftentimes my goal is to resist that. But the only way that you begin, become what Paul's calling like-minded in one spirit is to actually do what Jesus calls to do, which is actually, as brothers and sisters, getting in each other's face with grace and with the goal of restoration. And that we could do that without feeling like our convictions are compromised. We could both affirm our core beliefs as well as actively listen to those we disagree with. Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each the interests of others. Now, as a church, we have things that we are convicted about. We, we have beliefs that, you know, if you came to this church, if you became a member of this church, you'd read through the articles of faith. And, 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 the art, and many of you, even becoming, before coming to NBC, you want to know what we believed. Those are things that we believe. We're con- convicted about those. We're convinced about those. Things about Jesus and, and what Scripture is talking about as far as salvation and all these other issues. But I also recognize that I am in a brother and sisterhood of believers that are following Jesus Christ who wouldn't affirm every point on that in that articles of faith. I do ministry with other people outside of our church that don't, they couldn't check off everything on that list. And it's very easy for me to, to keep that person at an arm's distance or, or to demonize or, or put them down or whatever rather than having the charity to say, you know what, I disagree with this person theologically. I disagree with how this person views scripture, perhaps. I disagree with what because I think that they're shooting themselves in the foot and they're making a big problem out of that. But we have a brotherhood that actually is something that ultimately I believe God is going to illuminate and, and help us understand the fact that there's a lot of things that we don't have perfectly right. But the truth is, is that, the, that as brothers, we can continue to come into settings where we can come back to this book and try to decipher what it is saying to us. We can both affirm our core beliefs as well as actively listen to those we disagree with. One of the most paralytically um, handicapping dynamics of our culture today, not just the church, but our culture, is that we are more uh, grounded in what we believe, even if we don't know why we believe them. We're more grounded and adamant and militant sometimes about what we believe, and we are less likely to listen to someone we disagree with. That's culturally, but, it, but it, that's infiltrated the church as well. And the, the problem is that within the church, we almost have like a religious vibe about that, a motivation. Well, I, I, of course I believe that, and of course I'm kicking Eric to the curb or demonizing Eric. He's believing the wrong stuff. We can actually listen to Eric without believing what Eric is saying, but we can actually listen to what someone else believes or or aspects of doctrine that we don't adhere to. And the thing that you may find, and this this will blow your mind, the thing that you may find is that those things that Eric believes, some of those things might actually be true. Over the course of my spiritual journey, there's things that I did not believe, I didn't, I didn't hold on to, and all of a sudden, listening to people who are actually showing me things in Scripture that I wasn't seeing, it opened me up to saying, man, I never thought I really believed that, but I do now. And that's amazing, but you're never going to get there if you don't listen to people. We need to refuse to let our convictions cancel our call to love others. We need to consistently be that person who's reaching out in love. 
Now, the amazing thing is that at the end of this, and, and again, Paul, Paul is someone who is not short on convictions. He, you read through the book of Romans and you see just the amazing theology that he's dropping down that he's convicted about. But you also see him talking to people and saying, let's be united in, in the mind. Let's be united around who Jesus is. Let's be united about our convictions and try to aim for that restorative work that only God can do. That can only happen when we're seeing people through that lens. Then he gets to 14 and 16. He says, do everything, everything, without grumbling and arguing and complaining. When we just see Eric for what Eric is doing and what, what he believes and everything else, it's very easy for us just to argue and complain. Paul is saying, do everything you can possibly do without grumbling and arguing and complaining. We talk, we listen, we disagree, but we, but we avoid that. And then he says, when that happens, we become like stars that are shining in the midnight darkness. We become these beacons of hope to an outside world that's looking in. There's a lot of people who've walked away from church because of of their own, there's a lot of Eric's that have walked away from the church because of their own sin and their own shame about that and they feel like they never could come back. And that's a lie of Satan. The truth is, is that as a church, we need to be the type of people who are engaging face-to-face with one another that we could be the kind of lights where the, the way that we interact with others is through the lens of how Jesus has treated us and how Jesus sees them. And when that happens, we're going to start seeing people who are far from God all of a sudden have an on-ramp back home. The Holy Spirit will bring them back. One of my favorite painters is Rembrandt. Um, this is um, a Rembrandt um, from halfway through his life. Um, and he painted the prodigal son kind of at the high point of his rebellion. And um, you could see him holding up the flask and everything, or the, um, the, the pint there and, and just enjoying life. And the prodigal son in Luke, we see that this, this parable Jesus told was about this kid who is running away from the father. And um, he, he takes all of his inheritance and it says that he invests it in wild living. So prostitution and, and basically any kind of pleasure he could get. And he just blows the whole, like, like whole inheritance on this living. Rembrandt wanted to capture the moment in a point where he was at, and, and in the high point of actually Rembrandt's own rebellion from God. God. Rembrandt was someone who uh, was cheating on his wife with multiple, in multiple affairs. He was blowing all of his own money in, in all of this wild living. And so when he paints the prodigal son, he paints his own face into the prodigals. That's Rembrandt's self-portrait of himself being the prodigal, running away from God and loving every second of it. And through the course of the rest of Rembrandt's life, the tragedy and the difficulty of a life lived outside of God just set in. Major tragedy in his life. He, became to the, he got to the point where he started to have zero money at all left in the bank account, and he's dying alone and friendless and pushed to the edge. And one of the last paintings he paints before he dies is, again, the prodigal son. But he paints it differently. He paints the prodigal at the end of the story. Clothes are tattered. Head is shaved from a life of slavery that he had to get into. Collapsed at the father's feet. In the picture, you have the older brother um, looking on judgmentally the way Jesus described it, not willing to let this son come back home. And just like Rembrandt, he found a way to put himself in the picture. Rembrandt is in the shadows watching on to see what is the father's response going to be. Will he bring the son back home? Will he let him come back? And in another amazing little detail that that Rembrandt included, the father's hands 
look different. One hand is strong, representing the truth of the Father, while the other hand is soft and smaller, representing the grace. That this God welcomes the Son back with both truth and with grace. That needs to be our story. We need to be the people of God who are not letting one outweigh the other, but we follow Jesus' example of being completely truthful and completely loving. Is there somebody in your world that you need to make a phone call to? Another believer that you've had every reason to kick to the curb because of what they've done, but in this moment, you recognize that if you saw that person through the lens of Jesus and his work, you saw the way Jesus has looked at you and has treated you and the way that Jesus looks at them and what he desires for them, if that changes perhaps the strategy that you've been employing with this person, a child, a sister, a brother, a parent, someone at this church, what if you actually made a phone call to them? They might be in this room right now. You might be sitting next to them. What if today you stepped into being real with each other by looking at this person, not through your own eyes, but through the eyes of Jesus and watching to see what he does? Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray a blessing over this group of people and an encouragement, God, um, for all of us to follow your lead. It's very easy for us to fall into keeping records of people's shortcomings and wrongs. It's very easy for us to fall um, into the very human characteristic of being bitter and hard-hearted. Lord, I pray that you melt our heart, that you give us the ability to forgive the abrasive people of our world, the sandpaper people who have just rubbed us raw as far as the way that they've treated us, the words that they've said. God, if there's room for forgiveness here, I pray that you motivate us to take that step, following your lead, not ours. If there's room here to reach out for restoration, I pray that you help us do that, following your lead, not ours. And God, I pray that this ultimately will be for glory, but not our glory, but yours. That you'll be glorified as a result of that. We will give you the thanks and the glory from that. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 See you next week. Let's go live it out.